0: Do you like the work we're doing here at It's All Journalism? For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us continue the conversation about good journalism. Show your support by donating to our Patreon campaign. Go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to donate.
1: Putting your work out in the world is not you know, it's not easy. You have to deal with people's judgment, you have to deal with rejection, and so I think the more that you keep yourself excited to do the work and remember that you're excited and allow yourself that process, the more you can kind of weather the times that it's difficult.
0: Writing is the core craft and the thing that brings many people to journalism, but it's something we don't always think about and challenge ourselves to become better at. Why is that? I'm Michael O'Connell, and you're listening to It's All Journalism. So, on the phone with me today is Julia Goldberg. She's the author of Inside Story. She's also a professor at Santa Fe University of Art and Design. Welcome to the podcast, Julia. Thank you for having me, Michael. So, we met at uh, the Association of Alternative News Media conference back in July. I think we exchanged books, and uh, I, I wanted to talk to you because the book that you're writing, you, you have written, uh, Inside Story, I guess you describe it kind of as a, a textbook for teaching. People who may not have had any experience writing, let alone writing news, is that kind of a good description?
1: You know, the subtitle is Everyone's Guide to Reporting and Writing Creative Nonfiction. The sub subtitle is for writing students and teachers, citizen journalists, bloggers and working writers. So I tried to I had my own students and classes a bit in mind, but I also tried to write it in such a way that it could be helpful to someone who is a working writer but is looking, you know, for some ancillary text. It's not, I don't think, just a beginner's guide, but it certainly is also a beginner's guide.
0: Yeah. Now, I I had a chance to read the book over vacation, and uh, it's pretty sort of wide-reaching. It kind of touches on a lot of the ways that, you know, we as journalists use writing to do our jobs. I mean. Journalists, you know, we're reporters, we report the news, that's kind of our job, but writing tends to be the main way that a lot of us bring that information to people, nonfiction writing, in particular, what you're talking, what you talk about. So how long have you been a writer?
1: Gosh, well, I was the editor of the Alternative Weekly, the Santa Fe Reporter, for about 11 years, and prior to that, I was a staff writer and associate editor there for I gosh, seven years. And prior to that, I was a reporter and a freelance writer elsewhere. So just in terms of being a working writer, wait, am I going to accidentally reveal my age here? I mean, in terms of being a working writer, I don't know, 20, 25 years. And then just in terms of thinking of myself as a writer, probably like most of us, you know, since childhood, you know, high school newspaper, college newspaper, all of that. So... My whole life. <laughs> but as a working journalist, you know, 20, 25 years, I lie about my age a lot. So it's hard to really pin me down on this. At least 20 years. Let's go there.
0: Yeah. You, you're doing really well for somebody in their 90s. Um, <laughs> so, so, you know, you throw these softballs up. They're easy to hit. So I don't always think about writing. You know, I always think of myself generally as a journalist, as, as an editor. And I never quite think about the craft of writing writing. For you, I mean, you know, you obviously had to think a lot about the writing process to write this book, and obviously to do your job in in teaching students. I guess I, I'm not sure which track I want to go to go down this point. Do I want to go down and talk about the beginning writer, or do I want to talk about the the old tired writer like me, who doesn't think about writing, who doesn't think about writing? But it is something because you know I liked reading your book because I really don't read books like this that often, and I can't remember the last time I wrote a I, I read a book about the writing process, maybe even back in school. You know, why do you think it's important for writers who may have been in it it for a while to sort of think about the process?
1: Well, you know, when I started teaching, and I, I started teaching a little bit while I was still editor of The Reporter, and I found it really invigorating to teach and start sort of trying to articulate the things about writing that I had taken for granted and to push myself to think about writing. I found it really energizing to do that. And I started thinking a lot about just this notion of how do we kind of cultivate creativity and excitement for our work. And for me, I thought, well, one of the ways that I cultivate it is by reading really great writing and thinking about how the writer has managed to pull off what he or she has done and the more I taught, the more I was looking for ways to bring that into the classroom, to assign work that I thought was exciting, to have the students think about how that was being executed at a craft level. And I was trying to use different writing books to achieve that. And at a certain point, I thought, there's just not one writing book that is including all the great work I think is out there, all the ways that I think about things. And I thought, well, probably nobody else has like, written a book that says exactly what you wanted to say. So maybe that's like when you wrote your own <laughs> when you write your own book But that's how it started for me It's just I got really excited Having the chance to think about writing And it made me excited about writing myself And it made me excited about reading journalism And doing all the things that are very hard to do When you're on deadline Someone in the talk I gave in D.C. when we met sort of was asking, I gave a talk about multimedia and they asked, look, like, how do you get excitement, you know, how do you get the energy to do these different kinds of projects when you're on deadline? And I answered the question really poorly at the time, but I thought about it later and thought, you know, this is what needs to happen is you have to be cultivating a sense of excitement by reading or looking at things and going, wow, I'm super jazzed about this, which is hard to do, but I think really important to do.
0: So when you're, when you're just working day to day, a lot of what happens is so much of it is just rote, that you just kind of you know, you have your go-to way to write stories. You're not always thinking about the craft of it. You, you know, it's okay. What's the most important thing? You know, I don't necessarily think, you know, doing the inverted pyramid, but, you know, identifying what the main points of the story are and then sort of like crafting them in the way that you almost always do. So what can you do to try to get excitement and bring other aspects or different approaches to your writing?
1: I think again, you know, coming from an alt weekly background, and, and obviously you do as well. I think that unlike, you know, maybe daily and more traditional journalists, a lot of people who end up in Alt Weekly World did not come there necessarily through journalism school, did not come there necessarily trained about the inverted pyramid. And that experience dovetailed for me really well teaching because I don't teach in a program that is a journalism program. It's the creative writing department. And in fact, a lot of my students weren't very interested in journalism per se because they'd only been exposed to kind of very daily journalism style. So I think many people who are passionate about journalism are passionate about it in large part because of writers they've read who made journalism their own. So for me in particular, I read Fear and Living on the campaign trail of seventy two, long after nineteen seventy two, but I was a high school journalist and I just I like, couldn't get over Hunter S. Thompson's voice in it. I just was really drawn to his first person voice and to how kind of ballsy and adventurous he was. And so to me I was like, oh, journalism lets you like go out there into the world and learn all these cool things while you know, while having your voice. So I think You know, for journalists to think about the journalists that they admire, I'm sure to some degree that can be that they admire the work they did or the stories they told, but I think it's also how they told those stories and what kind of stories they went after. And so to me, to be a journalist and not be kind of immersed in the journalism of the past, especially in the alt-weekly world where so much of it was born in the 60s and 70s where you had Tom Wolfe and Joan Didion and all these kind of long form writers who were taking approaches from fiction and taking lyric approaches to their subjects, you know, just reminding people that, you know, most people become journalists because they want to be writers and possibly get paid, at least back in the day when journalists got paid. <laughs> I think that's why people did it. So just remembering that all those tools are there are there for, for them. I read, there's a book called The Empathy Exams by a writer named Leslie Jameson that came out a few years ago, and it's nonfiction, and a fair amount of it's reported. And it's just so gripping a book that I read that book and was like on fire to write and report and try to, you know, it was very inspiring. And I think always looking out for writing that inspires you, you know, makes us better writers.
0: I agree. And I know that when you begin as a journalist, or just a writer in general, there are people that you sort of fall in love with, and you you, you sort of want to adopt their voice and their strategies and the types of stories that they use. But of course, you know, the, the thing that you learn eventually is what's important is for you to develop your own processes and your own, your own voice, and your own interests, as opposed to aping somebody else. But you know, aping somebody else is, is a good, certainly a good place to start. I know, you know, Mm -hmm. I've talked to editors, I've been at newspapers where when new writers come in, maybe fresh out of college or just off the street, because I'm actually, you know, I kind of agree with you. A lot of the good writers that I've worked with are people who did not go to J school, who did not have an interest per se in becoming a journalist, but were interested in writing or that they liked writing when they were in college or or something, or something that came easy to them. And they just got interested in this idea of being able to put down your thoughts. And so... The idea that, that so much of what you learn about writing and reporting is on the job, the responsibility then comes back to the individual to sort of, you know, yeah, you can be that person who just turns out a formula every day and every week, or you can be that person who's going to challenge themselves to take them to sort of the next level, you know, sort of push the boundaries of what you, your comfort level is for for writing. I think that's key. That's something that's that's tough sometimes On a uh, if you're working, you know, at a daily newspaper or, you're, you know, you've got regular deadlines that you've got to meet. But, you know, it's also important to grow your voice and grow who you are.
1: Yeah, and to remember why you wanted to do it in the first place. Um, yeah. Which, which I think for most people, I think a lot of journalists are drawn to journalism because of writing and a curiosity about the world, I'm sure. But it's also the writing piece. And, you know, I certainly have turned out things where I wouldn't say like, oh, this is like the writing and this was incredible. Sometimes you just have to sort of slam something out. And I think the ability to do that is really exciting as well. And I've seen it with some of my students where by the time they're sort of ending their, their tenure as students, they're so fast. And I'm like, you know, you could be hired. You're hireable. You just slammed out a 700 words. You interviewed a bunch of people and slammed out a story and they're like oh is this like a skill I'm like "Yeah, it is not everyone can do this so
0: now was inside story the first book that you'd written
1: yeah i was an editor on um, the association of alternative news media we did a book with northwestern university press at some point when i was editorial chair of the board of directors and i was an editor on that but this was the first sort of fellow author piece for me
0: You read a lot of things and you interviewed a lot of people. I interviewed a lot of people. I (laughs) I interviewed,
1: yeah.
0: (laughs) How (laughs) how long did it take you to write the book?
1: That's a question I've been asked a lot. And every time I'm asked, I think I should really come up with a good answer for this question. The interview piece of it took, I mean, I, I think I interviewed people for the better part of six months and then sort of had that feeling you have when you're on assignment of like, oh, I've done all my interviews. And then I went. Oh, God, look at all these interviews I have to transcribe and figure out. So then after that, I think it probably took another year to kind of pull the book together. And I was working a little bit more slowly than I would have liked because I was teaching full time. And and there were days where I just thought "I I can't. I just wrote like the equivalent of 50 stories this month. I can't do. I can't keep doing this. So it took a little longer than it should have, but about a year and a half altogether, I guess.
0: Yeah, the, the writing, writing something along like that, it, it is a bit of like you have a well inside you and it's just like, you know, how deep is this well? <laughs> Can I keep going into it? And eventually it's, it's fatiguing. You get to a point where like, I just need to step away or I need to stop. The book I wrote, you know, I, I think I spent maybe four or five months interviewing people and then maybe three and a half months, well, four months uh, writing it. So it was a quick turnaround. It wasn't quite as long as your book, but not that we're measuring, but, but but, it is what it is. Did you have confidence at the beginning that, yeah, I'm going to write this book? This is something that a project that you, if at the very beginning that you envisioned, yeah, I can do this.
1: You know, I think I went through whatever – I don't remember how many stages of grief there are, seven or something. I think I went through a lot of different stages with the book. I had it for the proposal to the publisher. I had written already. I had sample chapters. I had an outline. I'm a very um, methodical type of human being. So I felt like, okay, I have this all outlined. I know exactly who I want to interview. I know I have a lot of my material already is out there from lectures I've given and from sort of class instruction. Here's my schedule. This is kind of a piece of cake. So I had a lot of hubris going into it. And then I love interviewing, and I did. I was on the radio for several years. So that confidence kind of carried me through the interviews. I was having a great time just talking to people and talking inside baseball and talking journalism. And then as I started to kind of transcribe and pull things together, And work through, I sort of had this idea, I'll just go chapter by chapter through my outline. And suddenly things started getting shaky where I was like, but this doesn't fit here. Maybe this fits there. Wait a minute. What was that? The article I was going to reference, where's my copy of this book? And suddenly, within a few months, like my office, like there were books falling on top of me, and you know, I had paper everywhere. And, I, and that's when I started going, Oh, god, this is like much more of a process than I had imagined, which I think is good. I think whenever you're writing something, it's good to have something that matters to you. It's good to have those moments of sort of having your ego crushed and realize this is much harder than I thought it was going to be, but I can do it. So I didn't ever think, Oh, I won't do this, but. But I was surprised by how much harder it was. And looking back, I think my uh, my outset attitude of this is going to be a piece of cake is a little naive and ridiculous. But live and learn, I guess.
0: Yeah. Well, but now you're on the other side of it. And you have having written a book, you can say, well, I wrote a book. It was a piece of cake. See, now you can say it's a piece of cake. I never had the the, this is going to be a piece of cake illusion. The beginning of my process, it was more of I think I can do this. And, you know, I think I can get my arms around it. I mean, if this is just a longer, like, nonfiction piece, right? I can just mm-hmm. interview a bunch of people and string them all together. But, you know, as you begin interviewing people and, you know, interviewing people for a half hour, an hour, and you suddenly realize you've got all this tape and it's, you know, the idea of, okay, uh, how am I going to translate this into text that I can, you know, work with and I can edit in structure? I, I, I think... I remember there was sort of a pivot when I was in the middle of the interview process where I began thinking, okay, well, I really need to start organizing things here during the interview process. You know, I got to start identifying people who are going to speak to this particular aspect of the book and focus my conversation on that. Because what I began was, it was pretty much these general conversations touching on different things on podcasts with each interview. But the the further I got into it, it's like, well, I've got a lot of people saying the same sort of thing. I need to start structuring the content that I'm bringing in so that whenever I get to the point where I'm going to quote unquote transcribe, I got to a, actually got to a point and I started transcribing and I, I ended up using a service to transcribe right. automatically. And that helped me tons because it got me the, the text in a form where I could sort of start working on it. I've no, never it's, done that. And
1: I always think it would be a really great thing to do.
0: <laughs> well, it, it costs some money. It didn't cost a lot of money, uh-huh. but it's still, you know, actually there's these new technologies that are coming out where, uh, You know, I work at a radio station, and I dealt with uh, a couple of different uh, people through the podcast who've sort of pitched us uh, transcribing processes, and and one of them I I reach out to. And it's it's some sort of program that you run. they run the audio through, and it spits out text that's pretty close. You still have to go through and edit while you're listening, but that's a whole other process. But it saves you some amount of time. But anyway... You mentioned also the, uh, you know, having to do the pitch and everything and the outline, you know, that was so useful to me, because it, you know, gets you thinking at the beginning about what you want to set out to do. And then when you get to the writing process, you know, that suddenly, oh, my God, I have an outline that's going to help me. I I relied on the pitch documents quite a lot when I got into the sort of organizing and writing stage.
1: I agree. And, you know, I have a whole chapter on structure and I spend a lot of time thinking about it. I'm often drawn to pieces that are doing tricky, interesting things with structure. And I feel very aware of, I think it can often be where writers fall down as they just, they write it and then they figure out how to edit it. And I I like at least trying to have a structure ahead of time. And although I made some changes, my outline was pretty invaluable. Otherwise, I think I would have just been sort of like turning around in the dark and not knowing, you know, what I was doing or where I was going.
0: Yeah, it was the same thing to me. There was one section that I had to add a whole new chapter that I hadn't anticipated and split another chapter into two pieces. Uh, But otherwise, Mm -hmm. I was lucky that it kind of stayed in. And structure was so important. And the other thing was, is thinking very much about the audience. Because it's like, okay, well, I'm not really looking about writing this book to, like if it were a news story, I'm not trying to inform somebody of Like something that's happening that they can use immediately, but it's supposed to be sort of instructional. So I had, you know, okay, whatever effort I put into a particular chapter, I have to think, okay, how can the person who's going to be reading this, how are they going to use it? And, And how can I structure what I'm doing to make it easier for them? And then it also helped me sort of order sort of the sequence of events because really, because my book was about like, you know, learning how to do podcasts that you can start at the Mm -hmm. very beginning of the process and you sort of work your way through it. So that, that helped a lot as well. Just understanding, well, you know, if they read chapter one, when you get to to chapter two, they'll, they'll have a degree of information that they're going to be able to work off of.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. So, so kind of you, you structured things kind of like process writing. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me.
0: Yeah. I like to, um, a lot of the scope that you had in your book, you had the different types of people that you talked to and the different different examples of structure, of the different types of nonfiction that there, there is that out there that you don't even think about. But the fact that you're, you know, here I'm going to be presenting this information that's supposed to be informational to people, that you give different examples and sort of the strengths and the weaknesses of both and how they can be used I thought it was really good because, it, you know, you talk about it being a nonfiction book. It, certainly, it's good for journalists. But then it's also for people who are involved in this, you know, sort of odd duck of nonfiction. What is nonfiction? I think you kind of even explore that to a degree.
1: Yeah, there's, there are sections and writers that I talk to who are working more in the realm of memoir, um, who are working more in the realm of what's sort of called lyric essay and um, multimedia reporting. And part of it was I wanted to try to break down for myself This idea that sort of that reporting justice for journalism because I think all writing, you know, even in other genres, fiction, poetry. I mean, it requires investigation and the tools that journalists use. To ferret out information, to report, interviewing, just learning about the wider world are both available and really valuable no matter what type of writing that you're doing. And so I talked to, I try, you know, I think primarily I talked to journalists, but there's certainly numerous writers that I either spoke to or whose work I cited who work in different kinds of genres. And that was helpful in terms of, I think that one of the authors I talked to, um, you know, we talked more about paper research versus interviewing research because he had done quite a lot for his book and I talked with arts writers about criticism and I talked with more personal writers about voice and about delving into sort of difficult subjects so I I tried to make it have sort of broader appeal beyond just kind of straightforward, you know, reporting. And I was never a daily reporter myself, so it's not really my area of expertise anyway, although I do go into beat reporting somewhat extended (laughs) in an extended way because I think those tools that a beat reporter has can be useful for anyone who's interested in jumping into writing about a particular area.
0: Yeah, and you also fold in the, you know, some specific journalistic, you know, ethical situations and concerns so like on the, you know as you said on the one hand it's it's a journalism book but it's also a non-fiction book it's funny people have sort of a you know the label of journalist. I, I think everybody has sort of a different idea what that is that oh I'm not a journalist I, I do this but you know it's I guess it's the duck quacking thing is you know <laughs> if you're interviewing yeah. people and you follow a particular ethical standard then maybe you are a journalist even though you don't necessarily call yourself that
1: right now obviously journalism is taking, you know, a lot of hits from morons. But I mean, even before I started, you know, I had a lot of students who were like, I don't like journalism. And I was like, well, I bet you don't actually know what journalism is. They just, they're they just sort of walking around. I mean, you know, it doesn't take much one bad high school newspaper experience. And <laughs> you can think that you hate journalism. So to me, um, teaching has been a lot about talking people out of thinking they hate journalism and making them love it. And I think the book in a large, in a lot of ways, is sort of a calling it a love letter is a little bit say. But, you know, it's a little bit of, to me, a love letter to how much journalism means to me and all the journalists who have influenced me and, and inspired me. And I think now more than ever, it's really important to keep reminding people how important the work journalists do is for our society.
0: So was there a favorite part of the book that you liked writing?
1: You know, I have um, I often teach uh, sort of an ethical an ethics unit where we read The Journalist and the Murderer, and we talk about a million little pieces, and we just talk about all the weird kind of ethical issues that come up. And I had been thinking a lot about the podcast serial while I was writing this book, and all the weird ethics issues that had been raised about that. Especially, uh, Slate Magazine had kind of a serial. Podcasts um, where they talked about it, so I had a really fun time writing about, you know, true crime and journalism and thinking through some of the ethics of kind of how storytelling, true stories, can be sometimes problematic, and that that it's worth stopping and and thinking about it. Um, yeah, I like I like talking about that stuff a lot. I had fun fun thinking about it and reading about it.
0: Yeah, I, I'm glad you included the information you had in the book about serial, because I also experienced a lot of the misgivings, I think, that you sort of expressed about it. Not that it wasn't good, not that it wasn't entertaining, but, you know, being a journalist, just sort of questioning some of the decisions, you know, you're presenting this sort of story as a, you know, week-to-week mystery, yeah. and there's sort of at the beginning, there's you get the sense that, oh, that means that week 10, there'll be a resolution, and that, I will like a novelist or a mystery writer who's written all of these particular chapters and have all this, has all this particular information to arrive at a, a conclusion that you're going to have all of the pieces in it. But the fact was that they didn't have all the pieces in it. And so you come away with it like, yes, it was entertaining, but, you know, having some qualms, I guess, is the best way to put it.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you know, to be honest, I binged serial like a crazy person and had no ethical qualms about it at all. And it was only after it was done, and I started reading about it and reading other people's ethical qualms, that I was like, "Oh God, this is so true." And and started thinking about it more. And I taught a unit where I we listened to Serial and we read Capote's In Cold Blood, and then we talked about the ethical issues that both works raised, and then compared how the craft of reporting in nonfiction sort of manifested in these in these two forms that at the time were you know very much groundbreaking. And it's just very interesting to me discussion. And I certainly don't have all the answers, but I think it's important. You know, when I look back at some of the decisions I had to make as an editor, there are definitely ones where I have a different point of view on the sort of conclusions I reached ethically than I did at the time. And I think the only way to kind of grow as a journalist is to is to do that, is to go, hmm, I might have, maybe I made the wrong call on this, or what are all the issues involved in making this decision? So I was really helped by, you know, by having the opportunity to read, you know, so many publications now have their ethical standards online and um, certainly the Society for Professional Journalism has a ton of resources. So, again, you know, this that for me was I was learning while I was writing and while I was teaching, and I don't have a conclusion, but I find it interesting. The Journalist and the Murderer by Janet Malcolm is a book that's been important to me for a really long time, and when I started teaching it, the students' responses to it were so different than mine, and I thought, hey, what did I miss here? So it turned out I had missed a lot I just thought it was this incredible book about journalism and Janet Malcolm was so interesting and smart the way she thought about it and my students read it and were like all these people are horrible horrible people and I was like are they oh my god I thought only the murderer was a horrible person so you know just uh continuing to learn and I think that's you know a lot of why many of us are drawn into journalism is that you you do keep getting to learn about new things including what you're doing and how people perceive what you're doing
0: yeah I think it's funny I think I think from from like novels or, or from fiction you, you have it or any type of you know written art like that where you you have a an expectation that you know oh this was written 20 years ago but it's going to be viewed differently in 20 years you don't always think about that in journalism journalism it's like oh well, this is a, a photograph this is going to stay this way forever but you know people's perceptions and you know facts change around it so that you know something that may have had like a huge impact you know it's like going back and reading reading stories that you that meant something to you when you were a child and then being a little embarrassed by like, oh, okay, I understand why I liked it when I was was ten or twelve or thirteen, but now it's nice, but it's it doesn't speak to who I am now. You know what's changed? The text hasn't changed. It's you. It's, it's the reader has changed. People's perceptions about everything is different. You know.
1: Well, the the, methodolo- the methodologies too. I mean, I was an editor during the sort of print to digital changeover, and the way I viewed the tools that were available to get information online when Facebook started. You know, at the time, I was like, oh, this is just a treasure trove. Look at this. I can find people. I can find their pictures. I can do all this stuff. And I have a much different view of the way social media is being used as a journalistic tool now than I did then because it's just, it's changed so rapidly. Everything has changed so quickly that I, I try not to think that any of my opinions are going to be thick in place other than sort of just certain foundational principles about transparency and, and public information. But everything else is sort of a lot of it's a moving target at this point and you know i think that's good it's good to stay current i know that when you know when the internet was created when you know when We as journalists were first having to work on the Internet and start thinking about things in a different way. There was a lot of resistance of like, gosh, how can we do this and do this other thing? And I was a little resistant myself. And I think putting aside that resistance and looking at the opportunities for storytelling, which I know is what you have done by jumping into podcasting and and having a successful podcast, it strengthens all the other tools as well, the writing and the thinking and the reporting and all of it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I met and worked with many sticks in the mud uh, the lack of a, a better phrase, but yeah, no, there's, there's lots of resistance to change in all of this and not all change is good, but you know, there are opportunities in change. And so it's a matter of you, I guess, figuring out what opportunities are good for you, what's going to help you, but understanding, you know, you make some choices, you know, you, you, you decide that you're going to bear your soul on, on Twitter for, you know, this particular job that you're at, you know, well, maybe that's going to keep you from getting a job someplace else or, you know, maybe in, in 10 years, you're going to regret some of the things you put up there because they made sense to you then when you were you were trying to figure out this new technology. But, you know, it's part of the whole, you know, I want to say the creative process, because this is a creative process. It's constantly mm-hmm, evolving absolutely. as a writer that you evolve. You know, you said at the very beginning that, you know, I think we all started out as wanting to be writers. I, I started out wanting to be a writer. I, I didn't know what type of writer I wanted to be. I thought I wanted to be a fiction writer, but then I found out that it was much easier Uh, to to interview people and then write down what they had to say. And then it was easier for me to edit other people's content. So, you know, ease actually has a lot to do with it. I guess I'm a little lazy in that way, but you just move forward. You got to keep moving, I guess. The people who aren't moving, the ones that make me sad, I guess.
1: Well, and I think that, you know, it's sort of like the more you understand the writing process, the easier it is to break through a block or the easier it is to edit a piece. I think that the more you're kind of excited by what's out there and you're pushing yourself, the less likely you are to stop doing it in the first place. Because I think it's, you know, it's easy to get discouraged. Being being a writer, especially if you're a freelancer or you're a fiction writer or any kind of writer, just putting your work out in the world is not you know, it's not easy. You have to deal with people's judgment. You have to deal with rejection. And so I think the more that you keep yourself excited to do the work and remember that you're excited and allow yourself that process, the more you can kind of weather the times that it's difficult.
0: Yeah. And you're lucky in the fact that you're able to interact with students who are, you know, who are just learning the, the way to do these things and to express themselves and to use these tools, because that's, that can be really invigorating, For you and for your creative process and seeing new eyes and and new minds approach this stuff is great.
1: I feel really lucky in that. And, you know, young writers I mean, most of my students are average college age. So they're, you know, early 20s and they just they write a lot. They have incredible creative energy. And I mean, hopefully I'm not sucking their creative energy for myself. But I definitely feel inspired by how energetic they are in their work. And, you know, I'm trying to do that for myself as well. And I tried to include in the book tips from others and myself about keeping that energy going because that's hard to do over, over decades.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's tough when you, you wake up, you know, mid-career, 25 years in a job and suddenly you're like, what am I doing? Uh, (laughs) I wanted, I started out here. This is where I thought I was going. And now I ended up here. It's tough, but you know, what do you say to somebody who's a little further on in their career and they they need to charge those batteries? What would you tell them to do?
1: You know, I was, have been really inspired by an essay that's called, I think it's called Essay as Hack. It's by a writer, I think is amazing, named Andrew Monson. And he, I think I think his background was he'd been kind of a computer coder and then he became a writer and, and an editor. And he talks about this idea of sort of hacking your own life and your own process, how easy it is to kind of get into sort of a rut. And that one way to get that out is to mix up what you're doing. So I think he talks about in that essay, like telling his students like, hey, if you write in the morning, go and Right in a parking garage in the middle of the night. Like, just do anything to kind of shake things up for yourself. And I think that that is really good advice that whenever, even if what you're shaking up isn't your writing routine, but it's just something else, the way you're living your life, any sort of shift that you make that changes the way you're seeing the world or the way you're viewing your own experience of the world can kind of shake loose that creative energy. And so, you know, what I mean is just. Like, don't get up every morning and do the same exact thing and go about your day the same exact way, even if it's just taking a different route to work or deciding, hey, this week I'm going to go do this random thing that I would normally never do. That shakeup, that internal shakeup, I think, is kind of somewhere within the vicinity where our creative impulses also lie. And so I know when I started teaching, it was such a weird new thing to be doing, and it scared the Crap out of me to be sort of standing in front of people and doing that. And I just got so energized and excited. And I thought, well, part of it is the work itself and the people I'm teaching, but part of it is just like I'm doing something completely different and scary and I'm changing the way my life feels. And that is energizing me in the way that like getting up at six every day and going to the gym and doing my 45-minute workout like it's just impossible i think to have your life be very rote and yet be super creative it's probably not impossible for some people but i think most of us we fit from you know falling in love with the world in different ways and and letting that energy kind of permeate everything that we're doing
0: yeah i know i agree wholeheartedly anyone who's who's Listen to this podcast, who's read the introduction of my book, knows my story, which was being in a job that, that I did not like and, uh, making some choices that sort of changed the direction of my life. And, and that's what you need to do. I mean, you need to, you know, take control of your life and make decisions. You know, is something I tell people, you know, a friend, I was talking to a friend of mine and I told her, you know, imagine where you want to be and just start making decisions that are going to put you in that direction. Uh, because I realized eventually that's what that's what I ended up doing is I, I imagined I want to be there. And how do I get there? And and so all the decisions that I make sort of inform it, that decision and, and push me da- that direction. And eventually I'll get there. And once I get there, I'm in a different perspective and I'm, I'm seeing further down the road. And, oh, I want to go there. It just continues and continues. This idea of being able to say yes to things rather than just, no, it's too difficult or I don't want to do that because it's not my routine. You know, try new things. <laughs> I guess that's yeah, what we're saying. No, absolutely. yeah, <laughs>
1: absolutely. Well, you know, and I think to some degree, you know, having a degree of security is is also important to the creative process. I mean, I'm sure you've seen newsrooms or other work environments where it's like, well, radio is the, penulti- the you know the ultimate example of this. Like, you show up one day and they're like. This is a reggae station now. I mean, but, you know, I think that level of insecurity requires real strength of will to be creative in. So a little bit of balance of both uh, security and taking risks is probably the, the way to go.
0: Yeah, we're saying don't be, don't go crazy. <laughs> <I think laughs> I'm
1: it's... imagining, like, the, the letters. Because of you, I quit my job.
0: Whoa, 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 All whoa. Right. Yeah, no, 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 no. Make sure make, a nest egg is a nice thing. You know, yeah. not that it, not that any working journalist has a nest egg, but yeah, you went from you went from journalism to education. You're really on the downward spiral. spiral.
1: No, I know, I'm, I know, I'm a real genius. I ran into an editor I've known a long time when we were in DC, and he said said the same thing. He's like, "Boy, you sure can pick careers." I was like, "Nice to see you too." But you know, the experiences that I've been able to have teaching have been really kind of remarkable. I don't think this book would have happened. And, you know, for a little while, my school had an international teaching program. And so, you know, two years, three years after leaving the reporter, I found myself in India, you know, teaching a week of journalism workshops. And I just thought this is like, Nothing I would have planned for myself or even thought was a possibility. And how amazing is it that I'm having this experience? So I can't regret my inability to pick lucrative, long-lasting careers because I was never good at any of the things that, that seem to make people money. So
0: yeah. it, it,
1: just, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah.
0: Be happy. Be happy in the struggle, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. Julia, thank you for being on the podcast. This is great. <laughs> thank you
1: for having me. It was so much fun talking to you. I appreciate
0: it. I mean, Yeah, I enjoyed it as well. Next time on It's All Journalism.
1: So we have these journalists who are wired into this government in a way that none of my competitors have and we're going to use that. Like that is a huge strength to cover the story in Washington. I've always believed that that was our distinctive advantage in a crowded media market. I think the stories of the last week have proven that with beyond a shadow of a doubt what is possible when you invest in good journalism and beyond just sort of the big institutions that get a lot of attention. There's a lot going on in this town.
0: In our next podcast, I'm joined in studio with Carrie Budoff-Brown, editor of Politico. She shares stories about covering the Obama White House and helping to launch Politico Europe. It's a great conversation about what it's like to work in a successful digital newsroom here in Washington, D.C. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about digital media. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and the Podcast One app. This week's episode was edited by Nicole Grisco. Amber Healy provided our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Hey, you've written a book. You can order copies of Turn Up the Volume, a down and dirty guide to podcasting on our website. Visit itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page. Isn't it about time you started your own podcast? What is this? Uh, our two hundred and sixtieth episode or something? You listen to podcasts before. Hopefully, you listened to It's All Journalism podcast before, so you kind of know the drill. We've started a Patreon page. Uh, we'd like you to get more involved in the podcast. I know. We, I know that sounds when people say that when they're asking you for money, they're really just hiding the fact that they just want to ask you for money. But but we actually do want you to be involved in the podcast beyond just making donations, although making donations would be a nice thing for you to do. If this podcast means anything to you, we'd appreciate it if you could help support it for a couple of dollars a month. You can help us continue to produce this podcast, open up opportunities for us to promote it through email marketing, through going to conferences, doing live events, things like that in exchange we'll uh you know share some uh information about upcoming episodes some exclusive audio maybe some cool swag stuff like that so go to our website it's all follow the link to our patreon page and donate what you feel you think you value this podcast for. we think it's priceless i hope you think it's uh priceless as well it's all journalism is produced in partnership with the association of alternative news media thanks for listening what's working in washington podcast with your host jonathan aberman we share this region's innovative entrepreneurial and creative spirit this podcast tells impressive stories of passion and spunk taking place here in the dc region it illustrates how the nation's capital is anything but the stuffy bureaucratic politics only reputation it tries to shed
1: the what's working in washington podcast find it on itunes the podcast one app podcast one.com or at wtop.com search podcast dc The Finish the Game podcast with your host, Sean Alexander.
0: Ball play to Sean. Across the 10 to 5. Touchdown, Seahawks. Hey, this is Sean Alexander, NFL MVP. Check out my podcast, Finish the Game, where I discuss sports and life lessons helping you become an MVP. The Finish the Game podcast. Find it on
1: iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com.
0: Search podcast DC.